Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 3, if you'll join me there where we left off. At this point in time, we left off in our last study together where Abner was just about to bring to David the remaining tribes of Israel to sort of consolidate the kingdom. If you remember at this point as sort of a backdrop, it kind of helps with a running start to where we're at this evening. At the time after Saul's death, David sought the Lord recognizing that God had ultimately dethroned King Saul who he had rejected as the king of Israel and after a 10 year stint of David really just uh, being prepared through struggles in the wilderness it was now time for him to embrace the calling of God for his life the will of God to become that king who God had ordained and chosen to be his king for the people and it tells us at that time, as the will of God was about to come to pass, as often is the case, there began to be efforts of interference and disruption the same way that when we move towards the will of God and we seek to be open to the true King Jesus reigning on our hearts, there's always going to be efforts of interference and things that are going to try and get in the way, fleshly obstacles, and that's exactly what happened. We're told at that time that uh, the people of Judah, the one southern tribe of Israel, uh, gave their submission to David, acknowledged David as the king. However, we're told at that time that Abner, who we'll see more of this evening, remember Abner was the sort of general of Saul's military, and Abner, it says, took one of Saul's surviving sons, Isboseth, and basically set him up kind of as a puppet king. Again, Abner was the one, it seems, who had the authority and the power. Ishbosheth, we see, seems to be a very weak man, weak-willed, and uh, very weak in his leadership. But uh, as in cases even this day, when sometimes there's a situation maybe in a, in a country or a nation where the military seeks to take control in a certain situation, Situation. They need to have some political figure so it doesn't look like the military is actually who's in power. And so that's really what happened. Abner, as the military general, the one who it really seemed to have the authority wanting to resist David's rule and probably wanting that rule ultimately for himself to be the next king, sets up Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, as the king. And so 11 of the nations of Israel continue to give their allegiance to Ishbosheth, this descendant of Saul. At that time, we saw there was then a bit of conflict that began to take place between Abner and those who were serving Ishbosheth, and Joab, the general and commander of David's military forces, as there was ongoing conflict between them. And one thing that transpired, which is important to our study tonight, remember that in the midst of one of the battles... It seems as uh, as uh, Abner was retreating, uh, one of the brothers of Joab, we're told Asahel, began to chase after and pursue Abner, no doubt wanting to uh, probably execute Abner to assassinate and to take him out because he figured, well, hey, if I can eliminate the uh, you know uh, commanding officer of this rebellious group who's seeking to thwart David from being the king then David will richly reward me I'll be recognized and remember as Asahel was chasing after Abner Abner was a hardened uh, battle combatant man Abner kept saying listen you are uh, treading beyond where you should he kept telling him turn aside look go fight another battle this is not going to turn out and he warned him time and time again but Asahel kept persisting forward persisting forward 
forward, and ultimately it says that Abner just stopped, threw back the, the blunt end of his spear, and, and pierced him right through and really executed him in self-defense in the midst of what was military conflict. However, remember, this was Joab's brother, and so this began a real sense of animosity and anger in the heart of Joab, the commanding officer of David's men, because his brother had now just been killed by Abner. Well, as time proceeded and went on, of course, anything that's set up in a fleshly way and is not of the will of the Lord is ultimately going to deteriorate in time. And as we were leaving off last time, we saw as we got into chapter 3 that uh, it tells us there that Abner, who had set up Ishbosheth, was beginning to strengthen his hold actually on the kingdom because he was trying to take control. And this accusation came out in the beginning of chapter 3, uh, there in verse 7, where it says that Ishbosheth accused Abner of laying with one of his father's concubines and of having this inappropriate relationship which would have dishonored the, the family and the dynasty of King Saul. And Abner did not take too kindly to this. Uh, he became very angry. We saw there in verse 8, he sort of rebuked Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And now you charge me today, he says, with this fault concerning this woman. And then let's read from verse 9 downward. This is sort of where we left off last week, but let's refresh our memory. He then said to him, as the result of this accusation that came, verse 9, May God do so to Adnor and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba from north to south he's saying I'm going to take the entire nation and I'm going to bring them to David now and transfer the nation's allegiance over to David as the Lord has sworn to him he's basically saying I'm done with you Ishbosheth you were just a puppet king anyway I'm the one that has control over these 11 tribes anyway and I'm bringing their allegiance now over to David to let him be king over the entire nation and it says that Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. He was greatly intimidated by Abner. And Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you. Notice to bring all Israel to you. And as we left off in verse 13 last time, contrary to what we might have thought David's attitude would have been, which could have been bitterness. And anger and animosity after 10 years of Saul pursuing him, seeking to make his life miserable, and Abner being his chief bodyguard and his military general, David could have had great animosity towards Abner and said, and then on top of it now, here I'm about to ascend the throne, and you start another palace coup and set up another puppet king. But instead, David's incredibly gracious response, verse 13, he just says, good, I will make a covenant with you. So basically, David says, listen, I'm willing to let those things go for the sake of the greater good of the people of God. I'm willing to set aside my own feelings. I'm willing to set aside previous hurts and problems and, and things that have happened. And I'm willing to put what is God's will and God's best and what is best for his glory and for his people 
over any personal issues that I've had in the past or what's happened between us. And he says, look, this is the right thing. I'm willing to make a covenant with you if you're willing to bring the rest of Israel to me. But notice verse 13, one thing I require of you, David said to him, you shall not see my face, he says, unless you first bring Michael, notice Saul's daughter, that's key, when you come to see my face. Now, that seems like sort of a strange request. Uh, David puts this one addendum on. Look, I'm willing to make a covenant with you. I'm willing to forget the past, to forgive, to reconcile, to enter into a, a covenant relationship with you. If you want to transfer the rest of the nation under my rulership, I'm willing to do that. But he says, there's one prerequisite. First, I want you to prove to me your loyalty. He says, by bringing to me Michael, Saul's daughter. And again, remember, this was David's first wife. Uh, the Bible tells us back in 1 Samuel that, that David and Michael actually w were together initially in marriage. And then when animosity and things began to happen between David and Saul, that Saul took Michael and then took her away and gave her to another man. So what David is basically saying is, listen, that was my first wife. In essence, that was the true queen, as I'm about to be king. Uh, of Israel and and I want you to prove your loyalty by getting Saul's daughter and taking her and restoring her back to me as my wife now we might look at that and think well that seems really strange I mean what we saw at the beginning of chapter three David seems to already have a few wives at this point anyway so I don't think this was just David having to prove a point or that somehow he just needed another wife to add what he was already doing wrong in polygamy what this is no doubt here honestly is a very wise diplomatic and political move because if Saul's daughter, Michael, comes back to David as his wife, what does that do but help further consolidate the kingdom? Because then all those who are with Ishbosheth, Saul's son, remaining son, who had been set up as a puppet king, if now the daughter of King Saul is reunited with David, well, that just helps contribute tremendously to an easier reconciliation and, and a better way to consolidate and unify the kingdom. So this is a very diplomatic move here, what David is, is seeking to do, and really just a very wise way. In a time of reconciliation, he realizes proper restoration of something that was mishandled in the past would really be a very helpful thing to bring about something that God wants to do ultimately. Restoring things back can help to encourage unity. And, and I think as we look at our lives, sometimes a, a, an important part of the process of reconciliation includes restoration. And that's really what's happening. David says something of restoration needs to happen. This was handled wrongly. My wife was taken away and she was given to another man. And, and so what was taken from me ought to be restored. And he's saying, if you are genuine, if your intention is real and sincere, then show it by a measure of restoration. Restore what was done wrong. Make right what was done wrong. And see, many a times when there's a process of reconciliation that's coming to pass, you can really tell someone's sincerity by their willingness to say, look, I don't want to just reconcile. I also want to make right what I did wrong because I realize what was done wrong. And as an indication that I'm sincere and that I've had a change of heart, I also believe that it's important to restore, to bring about reconciliation. And here, so David is asking for this, that there might be a demonstration of sincerity. And again, this would truly help with consolidating the kingdom. 
So David, verse 14, it says, sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying very directly, give me my wife Michael, he says, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth somehow cooperated with this and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. And then her husband, or if you want to call it that, this was technically someone, she was never divorced from David, so uh, if you want to use that term, it's rather loose. Her husband, acting husband, if you could say, went along with her to Baharim, weeping behind her. And so Abner said to him, go, get out of here, go home, he says. So, I mean, Abner is not someone to be trifled with, you can tell. I mean, he just says, listen, you're done Go back home. There are bigger things that need to be taken care of him. And here's this guy. He's just, you know, he's the weeping husband. He does nothing really of fighting for his wife. He just, we are taking my wife away. Just be quiet and go home. And, and he just turns around and goes crying back home and just, you know, totally intimidated by Abner, this man. And again, we can't ultimately, I don't think, feel too sorry or empathetic for Paltiel because technically he was in a relationship with a woman that he wasn't supposed to be in anyway. Uh, so I don't think our sympathy should be overly aroused as we see poor Paltiel weeping uh, because technically he was living with someone else's wife. Uh, it wasn't like he was doing things in a righteous manner anyway. So now she is going to be restored. Abner sends him home. In verse 17, Abner begins this process now to seek to transfer the kingdom over to David. Verse 17 it says, now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel saying, notice he speaks to the elders now of the land, the leaders saying, in time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord had spoken of David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. So he calls together the leaders of Israel, Abner does, and he reminds them, interestingly enough, of the word of God. He reminds them of the word of the Lord there in verse 18 that had been spoken regarding David, that it would be by the hand of God's chosen servant, David, who God ordained, who God put his calling on, that it would be through David's life that he would bring about, it says, deliverance from the Philistines and their enemies. And so he begins by bringing forth the word of God to then ask them to respond in a way that's consistent with the will of God. And I like this. He's going to call them to respond and to do what God would want them to do. And his basis for doing that is not just persuasive communication. His basis for doing that is presenting to them the word of the Lord. And he says, look, this is what the word of the Lord says. This is what the word of God says. Now, he says, I'm calling you, respond. He says, do what God's word says. Obey what the word of the Lord is. He says to them there in verse 17, in time past, you were seeking David to be king over you. I love that phrase, verse 18. Now then he says, do it. Do it. He says, look, in time past, you were wanting at one point. You were actually, it seems, ready at one point to submit yourself to the rulership of David and bring your heart into alignment with God's authority and God's will. And he says, at one time you were wanting to do that and you haven't done it yet. So he says, now then, do it. Stop delaying and do it. He's saying, do that which you know is right. Don't delay any longer. Submit yourself to what God wants and to what God's word says. And I like this here. What a great exhortation for us to 
take to ourselves as you know people even in this day that when perhaps we have been delaying in doing God's will in some area or maybe surrendering to the Lord in a way that as you know his rulership maybe needs to have a greater reign over our heart and life and maybe at one time we were contemplating surrendering ourselves to the Lord in a in a greater way or really giving ourselves fully over to the Lord and we were we were thinking about it and pondering taking this step of obedience or surrendering in some way and just stepping out fully and giving ourselves to the Lord and and then we we hesitated and we delayed and we, we never acted upon it it's like that old adage where sometimes you know we read the word of God or we hear the word of God when it's presented to us like here with uh, what's taking place in the story with Abner speaking to the people and we're stirred but we're not changed and I'd be the first to tell you I wish every time I was stirred by what the word of God says to me I acted upon it and I was changed and I experienced what God was calling me or asking me to do, whether it's believing a promise or obeying in some area or repenting of some you know, area that's not in right you know, relationship with the Lord, some sin, some attitude. And I wish I could say that was the case, but there have been many times where I'm sad to say that I've read my Bible or, or sat in a, a meeting where the word of God was being taught and I was stirred, but there was no change. My spirit said, yes, that's right. And, and I was stirred, and, but yet I delayed obedience. And any delay in obedience is just disobedience. And so here Abner is calling the people. He's saying, look, there is no better time to respond and to act than now. He's saying, do it now. You were going to surrender and you never did it. So he's saying, surrender now. You are going to obey. You are going to do the right thing. He's saying, then do it now. You know, the Bible tells to us in the New Testament, now is the acceptable time. Now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not after you think it through. Just now. Now is the acceptable time. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. That if we hear his voice, we shouldn't harden our heart. When we hear the voice of the Lord speaking to us, that is the best possible opportunity we have to act upon and experience what the will of God is for us, whether it's submitting to the Lord in some area of our life or surrendering or repenting and bringing ourselves into a right place where we're living in right relationship to our King Jesus as these people here are being challenged now to come into a right relationship with the proper king in their lives and perhaps tonight the lord is saying to you if you've been delaying stop delaying and do it now now do it now respond act upon what the lord's showing you and perhaps when you speak to people maybe one of the exhortations the lord wants you to do is exactly that to present to them the word of god to tell them what perhaps they've been thinking about doing but then to challenge them do it now don't delay. Act upon it now. Do what God is calling you to do. Verse 19, So Abner spoke then in the hearing of Benjamin. And Abner also went, it says, and spoke in the hearing of David in Hebron. And all that seemed good to Israel and to the house of Benjamin. So this whole concept seemed to just resonate as being right to transfer the entirety of the nation's allegiance over to David. They're moving in this direction. Verse 20, So Abner and 20 men with him 
came to David at Hebron. So we sort of have like a, a peace negotiation here. And we have uh, David here and Abner with some of their ambassadors kind of coming together to the table to make these arrangements in a political way. In verse 20, notice David very graciously, it says, made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David, it says, sent Abner away and he went away in peace. So notice David here, as I said, graciously welcomes. He graciously welcomes Abner's desire and his efforts, you might say, to change. To, in a sense, we might say, repent. To have a change of heart, to say, you know what? I was not living in proper relationship with you, David, as the true king. And, and, and I realize that. And, and, and I am willing to not only do what's right, but to help encourage do others what's right. And he's, he's offering now a, 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 an effort to change. And David extends mercy and peaceful fellowship to him. It says David makes a feast for him treats him very well, blesses him, gracious to him, and even, it says, sent him away in peace. And I look at this and I think, what a beautiful picture, because is that not a very fitting illustration of exactly what Jesus does for all of us? The one who is greater than David, the true son of David, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, that when we, wherever we may be in life, desire change and we want to repent, and we want to come and get into right relationship with the Lord if maybe we haven't been. And so we come to him and we offer to do that and we are willing to submit ourselves and we enter into dialogue with the Lord once again. He's so gracious to us. He, he doesn't just sort of hold us at a distance. He doesn't let us suffer in things for a while. He just graciously welcomes us back and, and, and he, he gives us a sense of peace that things are okay and he's willing to embrace us and take us back and he welcomes the repentant who turn towards him. I look at the story and I think, isn't it such a great reminder of the, the, the uh, description Jesus gave of the prodigal? When remember the prodigal son went off and he squandered his father's wealth with all types of wasteful living and then it says that there was a famine in the land and he found himself struggling and starving and actually eating the pig slop and wishing that he could just be treated like one of the servants back in his father's house. And then it says, and he came to his senses. That's a great description of what repentance looks like. When a person comes to their senses and they start thinking straight and they realize, what am I doing? What have I done? Where, where have I drifted to? What, what, what was I thinking? And, and he desired to go back and he went back in complete humility not expecting nothing, not thinking he was entitled. He said, look, I'd rather, go, I'll go back, I'll just be a servant in my father's house. That would be way better than living out here, outside of my father's, you know, covering and, and help and, and care and, and out of relationship with my father. And he goes back, and what does the father do? You remember? It says the father girds up his loins, that is, he pulls up his, you know, sort of long robe, and he begins running towards his son. He doesn't stand there with the attitude of, well, so all of a sudden you decided to come back home now. Instead, he is enthusiastically running towards him, ready to embrace him and welcome him back. And then what does he do? Remember, he throws him a feast and he graciously welcomes him back. 
And that's such a picture of the heart of the Lord when we turn back to him as manifested by David's heart here in the way that he was beginning to rule as a king. And remember, it was the, the brother that got angry, got angry at his father that he was so gracious. And interesting, in this story, we're going to see Joab is going to get angry. How dare you treat that guy so nice? What were you thinking? He's not sincere. And, and he, much like the brother of the prodigal, Joab acts the same way. Watch what happens. Verse 22. It says, As that moment after Abner departed in peace, after the feast was over, at that moment the servants of David and Joab came back from a raid. So again, David's military general, Joab, as I said, they're out raiding and doing things. They now come back and bring a bunch of spoil, rewards from the uh, battle with them. But Abner was no longer there with David in Hebron for he had sent him away and he had gone away in peace. Things were well. Peace had been made among them. But when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and he sent him away and he has gone in peace. Now keep in mind, not only has there been history here, but what has well happened between Abner and Joab. Abner, in battle, put to death Joab's brother. And Joab's never forgotten this. There's still a measure of animosity of that hurt and wound within and unforgiveness because look at, look at the reaction now of Joab, David's general. Joab came to the king. Again, David's the king. He has the right to do whatever he wants. He's an authority. He's the one in rule. But he comes to David and he, he begins to strongly rebuff his own king, it says to him, he says, David, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away? And he's already gone. He said, what were you thinking? Don't you realize, he says, verse 25, that Abner, the son of Ner, he came here to deceive you. You don't think he was sincere, do you? You don't think he actually wanted to change. You don't think people actually do change, do you? You don't actually think that he was repentant. He just came here in a deceptive effort to survey what's going on, to gather intelligence, he says, verse 25, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. He says, look, this was just a plot. That guy's just a, a sneak and he came here and all he did was feign like he had some good intention and like he wanted to change. You can't believe that. People don't change. And then often the attitude many, many people have even many of God's people have? Maybe because somebody's got a really sordid past or maybe a really long bad history and because they've had such a long bad history, again, keep in mind, there, there was a 10-year story as a backdrop to this of Abner helping Saul and hassling David and Joab and all the men. So th there's been a lot of baggage here for 10 years. And he's thinking, look, this, this, this guy's been this and that. And he's done this and that. It's 10 years. You don't think that he's sincere. You don't really think he wants to change, do you? You don't really think he wants to be sincere. And sadly, we can be like that many a times. We're not willing to even be open. And maybe we're just nursing some of our own frustrations and our own self-doubts and hard-heartedness when we don't have the same gracious heart as King David was willing to have here. So he accuses David of just being utterly foolish, basically saying, look, what, what are you doing? You've been foolishly deceived. You let him get away. You could have put him to death right there. And when Joab, verse 26, had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Syrah. But David did not know it. So 
Abner now starts to take matters into his own hands. And he starts to make decisions and basically begins to say, listen, I mean, apparently David doesn't realize what he's doing. And so obviously I need to take matters into my own hands. So he now, in this very sneaky way, notice he's doing this deceptively. He's hiding it. Verse 26 says, David does not know what's going on here. He now sends messengers using his authority and position to go get Abner and says, hey, can Bring, bring him back. Tell him there's something that you know, we need to talk to him about still. Or perhaps Joab said, hey, you know, tell him since he was the general of Saul's army and I'm the general, then maybe we should meet and shake hands and you know, water under the bridge because we're going to be working together now. For whatever reason, he convinces Abner to come back. And Abner comes back. Again, he doesn't seem to be very concerned because he thinks that things are at peace between him and David, he just had a feast together with King David, and I'm sure that this wasn't uh, something that would have caused him to be alarmed. So he comes back now to the well of Syrah here at this point, and verse 27 says, Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately. And there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And again, if you roll the biblical movie in your mind. You almost imagine him just twisting the knife in his stomach and probably whispering, that's for my brother. That's hell. I've been waiting for this day. As he just, in cold blood now, murders him. And keep in mind, this is cold-blooded murder. Abner put to death Joab's brother Asahel, but that was in self-defense. And it was legitimately in the midst of, of battle and combat. This is nothing of that. This is just cold-blooded, deceptive murder in a completely different way that came from nothing other than bitter revenge. And that's all that this is here. And so now at this point, we begin to see Abner beginning to behave in this way and, and take notice as he begins to go down this wrong path and has now just murdered someone, which is completely wrong, and David will be very displeased with this, Notice the pathway towards this. Whenever we start challenging and rebelling, number one, against authority, because that's what he was doing. Remember, he rebelled against David's authority. He didn't think David knew what he was doing. Whenever we start to rebel against authority, we start to get that kind of rebellious attitude against the authority that God's put in our life or even God's authority in our life. Or maybe we're just rebelling against the authority of what we know is true from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And whenever we start to like... Abner, or excuse me, like Joab as well, we, we start to do things, notice the words, privately. We have to do things privately. We have to, we, we make sure that nobody's aware. Joab made sure David wasn't aware of what he was doing. Why couldn't David be aware? Because he knew he would have been accountable then. And whenever we start to get rebellious in our heart and challenge authority and question authority and we need to keep things private and hide things and we don't want accountability, I tell you, that is always a pretty clear indication you're on a pathway towards making sinful and selfish decisions. Because if we're not doing things in the light, there's a reason we're not doing things in the light. And here now we see Joab making this very grievous mistake here as he now murders Abner and keep in mind, the problem of this too is this now threatens this entire process of bringing into, you know, a, you know, sort of consolidation the entire nation which was about to happen as the result of David's meeting with Abner. Now his own personal feelings have jeopardized a much bigger cause because now it may look like that David was the one behind this. 
when this all comes out into the public because he was David's general. So afterward, verse 28, when David heard it, it says, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And then he pronounced upon Joab this rather strong curse to demonstrate his displeasure. He says, let it rest on the head of Joab and on his father's house and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge that would make someone ceremonially unclean from the temple or is a leper or who leans on a staff. The idea there is someone with paralysis, a health issue, or falls by the sword, someone who's dying in battle or who lacks bread, struggling with poverty. So he just says, may all the worst conditions possible Never leave the house of Joab for this grievous deed that he has just done. Again, it kind of pronounces this curse to show his complete displeasure and disapproval of what Joab has just done now. So Joab, verse 30, and Abishai's brother killed Abner because he had killed their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. And David said to Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. So we see David was a very compassionate man, a very caring man. Keep in mind, this was someone he had just reconciled with and all the people began to weep as well. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? The idea is this was a, a foolish, unnecessary death. Your hands were not bound nor were your feet put into fetters. He says, you weren't a criminal. And as a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. The idea is you were deceived. You were murdered in cold blood as someone who uh, is treated so by a wicked murderer would. And all the people, it says, wept over him. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me. And more also, if I taste bread or anything else, till the sun goes down and all the people took note and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people for all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. So David here, again, wants to demonstrate that, that this was something he had no part or participation in, but that this was strictly something that happened as the grievous mistake of a man, Joab, who did not ever properly deal with his own unforgiveness and bitterness that had taken root in his heart. And that's exactly how this happened. Since the day that Joab's brother Azahel had been put to death in battle by Abner, Joab was waiting for the day to get revenge. And granted he had been hurt, granted he had been wounded, we don't want to diminish that, but he developed unforgiveness and this bitterness and he nursed it and it became a grudge in his heart. And because he never dealt properly with his own unforgiveness and the own bitterness that he had towards another individual, notice it resulted in a very harmful and destructive action, literally in murder. And that's pretty intense. And let that serve as a good reminder for all of us that bitterness and unforgiveness that is left undealt with is never a very good thing in our lives. It always ends up resulting, typically, if not dealt with at some point, in very harmful and wrong actions where we do rather destructive and foolish things that typically are out of line and we overstep our bounds. 
And that's what Joab has done here. Again, he felt entitled to do this and he put his feelings of revenge and satisfaction over the word of God because God's word was very clear, thou shalt not murder. And he murdered. But he let his own feelings and personal desires supersede what the word of God said. And I'll tell you, when you become bitter because something has happened and you're not dealing with it in your heart, be very careful because you will very quickly find yourself as you're nursing your own feelings and animosity within, beginning to just ignore what the word of God says because you feel entitled to do what you feel is appropriate in the situation, to hurt somebody back or to behave in a certain way. And that always becomes a very dangerous and destructive thing. And David here wants to indicate to everyone this had nothing to do with him. Again, he doesn't want things to now be in jeopardy among the consolidation of the kingdom. So he showed his grief. He called the people to mourning here. David, again, showing this beautiful just compassion and humility that he had as a leader as he's following the coffin and grieving behind Abner's a burial procession, calling the people to do the same. And look, verse 38, as it wraps up, it says, Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, that would be Joab and his, and his brother, he says, these men are too harsh for me. And then verse 39, he says, the Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So notice here, sometimes, I think you see in the life of David, I mean, David just didn't know what to do with this situation. He was so, it seems, just thrown into heartbreak and, and, and disarray just mentally and emotionally of what had happened. And he's probably in some ways thinking, oh my goodness, I mean, of all things, I mean, here the kingdom was about to be consolidated and now this happened and if people think somehow this was my idea or I was behind this, uh, you know, all, probably all these things are running through his mind and he's fearing, oh my goodness, God's will and God's plan is in jeopardy. And, and David shows something here. Sometimes the best thing to do in messy situations is just quite frankly to commit the matter to God and let God resolve it. And that's what David does. At the end of verse 39, David says, you know what? The Lord will repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. He just says, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm just going to leave this with God's, leave this in God's hands. The Lord will deal with those who have done what is wrong and he will repay properly in the right timing and the right way and he just commits the matter to God. And, and let me just say something, ladies and gentlemen. Life's messy. Life's messy. Ever since the Garden of Eden, life's been messy. Families have been dysfunctional. People are sinful. And life just gets messy. And since the first time the first person sinned ever since, there's been blame shifting and well, you did this, so I'm entitled to do that. And you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. And you did this, so I'm going to do back. And all of a sudden, this you know, just quagmire of all these things, and, and life can get really messy. And sometimes when it gets really messy, the best thing to do is just to step back, to take your hands off and to say, Lord, you resolve this. You repay and you deal with and you resolve in the ways that you see best. And sometimes that is just the wisest thing to do to trust God to be who he is and let him sort out matters and take care of what needs to be taken care of. Well, chapter four, let's just look at it briefly. It's a short chapter, not much to draw out of it, really. It says, when Saul's son heard, now that's Ishbosheth, that Abner, the general, had now died in Hebron, he lost heart. He's thinking, oh my goodness, if they put Abner to death, 
what does that mean for me? I was just a, a puppet king in Israel that Abner set up. So he was troubled. And Saul's son had two men who were captains of the troops. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Rimmon, the Berathite of the children of Benjamin. For Berath was a part of Benjamin because the Berathites fled to Gitim and have been sojourners there until this day. So the Bible tells us now these two men, we'll see Baana and Rechab, uh, they seem to be maybe like captains, if you would. Maybe they were the next two in highest rank after Abner, who was the general. Uh, they're now going to take matters into their own hands and decide that they're done with Ishbosheth as this puppet king, and they're going to try and assert their own ideas, we'll see here in this chapter. Now, verse 4 gives us this little parenthetical note. It's interesting the Holy Spirit records it here. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when news about Jonathan came from Jezreel. That is when the news came that Jonathan, his father, and Saul, his grandfather, had been killed in battle. News came, and of course the, the state of Israel went into panic at that point. So his nurse, when he was five years old, this young boy took him up, and they fled. They went running for safety. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. He was paralyzed, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, uh, we get this introduction of Mephibosheth here. We get the rest of his story, which really matters. We'll see when we get to Second Samuel chapter 9. But we're introduced here now to this other descendant of Saul's family. It was a son of Jonathan, remember David's close friend, this young man Mephibosheth who became paralyzed from an accident. And we'll see how David graciously treats him when we get to chapter 9. You'll have to keep coming back until then. Verse 5. We pick back up now with the two men, the captains, uh, Rechab and Bayana, they set out and came about in the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. Now, that's a king's life there. It's noon. Either that or he was a rock star. I don't know. It's noon. And he's still in his bed. Instead of being out doing what he should be doing, he's just still laying in his bed. Or perhaps, again, the Mideastern climate, many times they take siestas or rests at the hottest part of the day. So that could be what he's doing here as well. A lot of times between noon and three in these cultures, the hot, arid climates, they'll rest at the hottest part of the day. So he's, again, he's resting, he's at peace, he's unsuspecting. And they came, verse 6, these two captains all the way into the house as though to get wheat, pretending they were there to pick up something. And they stabbed him in the stomach. That must be the way to assassinate in that day. They stabbed him in the stomach, and then Rechab and Bianna, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in the bedroom, and then they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. That's pretty gruesome. Try not to think through that too much. And took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. So now we have another assassination. Again, Ishbosheth, who was set up as this puppet king to rebel against David's rulership when David was going to ascend to the throne. Now, again, as we said, he was doing something was not God's will. But again, did David have to go deal with Ishbosheth? Did David have to go? Look, what are you doing? What is that David just says? Look, in the same way God dealt with Saul, God will deal with anything else and anyone else that comes into the pathway to try and hinder God's plan for my life and. Look what happens. Just circumstantial events. These two men, for whatever reason, decided now maybe you know that they wanted to be involved and somehow be richly rewarded to participate. So they now go and they assassinate uh, Ishbosheth and they, they take him out of the way. Again, David had to do nothing because the reality is, is, listen, 
When God's will is going to come to pass, it does not matter what kind of fleshly obstacles come into way to try and run interference, disrupt the process, slow it down, get in the way. Ultimately, listen, God will, through his just sovereign orchestration over life and events and all things, he will just allow things to be dealt with in their own way, in their own time. And we don't have to strive and force and kick down doors and barge through windows to make things. We don't have to take matters into our own hand. Well, that's in my way, so I'm going to go deal with it. You know, the Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty in God. And again, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war in the flesh. And so David had to do nothing at all. And Ishbosheth now, now he's put to death. He's removed. This problem is resolved in a tragic way, of course. Again, we have another assassination, another cold-blooded murder, which was completely wrong. They kill the guy while he's sleeping on his bed. And look what they do, verse 8. Here's what their intention was as the chapter concludes. They brought the head of Ishbosheth. That's why they cut his head off and brought it as a trophy to David at Hebron and said to the king, look, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life and the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants so they bring the, the head of Ishbosheth to David thinking what are they thinking David's going to be thrilled about this we, we took care of his enemy we, we, we you know decapitated the person who was standing in the way of David experiencing being on the throne and completely ruling over the nation so they think they're going to be richly rewarded they think we we've done the Lord's will we've done what God wants they come they come to David and I'm sure their jaws dropped verse 9 when David answered these two men the sons of Rim and the Barathite and said to them as the Lord lives who redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead. Remember we saw that at the end of 1 Samuel? Thinking to have brought me good news, I arrested him and had him executed at Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. And then he says, verse 11, how much more? He's saying, that, that happened in battle. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person. The idea is an innocent person. He was completely innocent, laying there in his bed, in his own house. Therefore, shall I not require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them by the pool of Hebron, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So again, David demonstrates his very righteous and strong judicial rule. David doesn't see this as something to gain self-satisfaction. Oh yeah, thanks. I mean, well, bummer he had to die, but <laughs> I hated that guy anyway. He was delaying my reign. David doesn't do that. David sees what's righteous and he says, look, that was uncalled for. That was cold-blooded murder. And he recalls the same event that happened when the person came to report Saul's death and thought he was kind of going to make David happy by Saul's death. And again, David says, look, this isn't right. This is horribly wrong. And, and he reproves them and he executes capital punishment. And according to Genesis chapter 9, where God said, if man sheds the blood of man, then by man his blood shall be shed. And David says, do you know what? You've murdered someone. You deserve to lose your life. And David, as God's king, the king after God's own heart, says this man deserves to be executed. And they put him to death. 
It even says that they cut off their hands and their feet. The idea was symbolically of you know what their hands had participated in was wrong. Where their feet had taken them, sneaking into his house and murdering them, that was wrong. And it says that David there, verse 12, it says, hung them by the pool of Hebron. The idea behind that was to clearly demonstrate that this man had been executed, that these people had been executed, these two individuals, because of what they had done wrong. And it was to be a very strong reminder and constant deterrent for the people. It says at the pool of Hebron. And that day, listen, you didn't turn on your tap water to get water inside your kitchen sink. You went out to the pool or to the well to gather your water. And every time you went out there, you saw this corpse hanging there. And it was a very strong reminder. Evil will not be tolerated. If you're thinking that you can be evil and that it will just be glossed over or winked at, It was a very strong reminder as a deterrent to other people, you better curb your evil desires. You better keep things under control. And sometimes this honestly is an area where we fail to recognize there is a value to justice. There is a value to reminding people and letting there be a deterrent in a society so that evil does not perpetuate and it doesn't continue, that there are consequences. You know, one of the things I would bring to your attention as we close this evening, notice back in verse 8, when these men came to David, what they said, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David, and look what they said. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day. As if the Lord had asked them to do that. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king. Look, look, Look what the Lord's done. What were they doing? They were basically implying the Lord was directing what they were doing wrong and sinful. And they were attributing their actions to the Lord. The Lord has avenged your enemy. The Lord had nothing to do with what they did wrong. But this is a very solid reminder for all of us. It is a very sad thing when we attribute our wrong actions to the Lord sometimes. And we need to be very careful. Because sometimes in our hyper-spirituality or quite frankly just in our complete sinful deception, sometimes we say, well, well I mean, the Lord wanted me to do this or the Lord said it's okay I would do this or, or, or the Lord wants me to be happy. No, the Lord wants you to be holy. He wants you to be holy. And we need to be very careful when we find ourselves attributing wrong things we're doing to the Lord if somehow God's approving of it. God's pleased that that's a very dangerous place to go in our hearts let's stand let's pray together let's turn our hearts to the Lord as we worship him father thank you for this section of the word of God and Lord the truths that you've weaved within this historical narrative of David and Lord now as he uh, moves toward the ascension uh, of the throne and begins to rule and reign over the people of God uh, father we ask tonight uh, that we in our own lives would continue to have a greater desire, Lord, to just embrace your rulership over our lives. Lord, help us to be real with where we're at and honest. And if there's anything that's amiss in our lives, that, Lord, we would want to get that resolved, that we might reconcile and be in right relationship with you as your people. Help us, Lord. And thank you that you're graciously ready when we turn, when we want change, Lord, You tell us, return to me and I'll heal your backslidings. Oh, Lord, thank you for that precious reality. Help us to respond to you as we worship now in Jesus' name. Amen.